I want to thank afterwards Bookstore for agreeing to host this discussion this evening. And I'd also like to thank Haymarket Books, one of Gilbert's several publishers. Um, they published a book of his titled Marxism, Orientalism, Cosmopolitanism, which is available for sale this evening. And Haymarket Books, as I'm sure you all know, is headquartered here in Chicago, although it is such a global operation now, people sometimes forget that. But I want to thank Haymarket Books for co-sponsoring this evening's event. And finally, I want to thank the Chicago chapter of Democratic Socialists of America, Chicago DSA, um, whose podcast is recording this event uh, tonight so that uh, those of you here uh, gathered in real time this evening, um, although you have a special opportunity to ask questions directly to Gilbert, um, uh, thanks to the Chicago DSA podcast, many others around the world will be able to listen uh, to this conversation later. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about Gilbert. Gilbert Ashkar has been called one of the best analysts of the contemporary Arab world. That's from the French newspaper Le Monde. He's also been called the preeminent Marxist scholar of the region in the online publication Counterpunch. Born in Senegal and raised in Lebanon, Gilbert is professor of development studies and international relations at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. He's the author of many books. I will just mention a few of them. The Clash of Barbarisms, The Making of the New World Disorder, published in 2002. Perilous Power, The Middle East and U.S. Foreign Policy, co-authored with Noam Chomsky, published in 2007. The Arabs and the Holocaust, The Arab-Israeli War of Narratives, published in 2010, also available for sale this evening. The People Want, a radical exploration of the Arab uprising, published in 2013. The aforementioned Marxism, Orientalism, Cosmopolitanism, published by Haymarket Books in 2013. And finally, Morbid Symptoms, Relapse in the Arab Uprising, which we are gathered to discuss this evening, published in 2016. It's worth noting that Gilbert's books have been translated into multiple languages, including Arabic. Now you might think, wait a minute. So he, I should just clarify, Gilbert has written most of his books in French. His native language is Arabic. Arabic and French, really, are your first two, both, right? Um, most of Gilbert's books were written in French. So when I say translated into Arabic and to English, they're being translated mostly from French, although the new book is written in English. So, but just bear with me for a second. These are the languages into which Gilbert's books have been translated. Arabic, Chinese, English, French, German, Greek, Italian, Japanese, Korean, Persian, Romanian, Spanish, Swedish, Turkish, and Urdu. And I mention this because Gilbert is truly a global thinker um, whose work has resonated and traveled uh, across the planet and has had an influence on debates um, on virtually every continent. <clears throat> I want to quote Rashid Khalidi, a, a great Chicagoan, although no longer a Chicagoan, 
New York stole him from us. But for those of you um, who were here during the quarter century or so that Rashid taught at the University of Chicago, you'll remember Rashid um, as, and of course you know his work as one of the leading historians of the Middle East and particularly of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is what Rashid said about Gilbert's book, The Arabs and the Holocaust. He called it a magisterial study, a work of breathtaking empathy, examining one of the most painful and emotion-laden topics in the modern world with sensitivity and high erudition. Writing about this book, the one that we're here to discuss this evening, Morbid Symptoms, the sociologist Kevin Anderson, another former Chicagoan, all these former Chicagoans, the sociologist Kevin Anderson wrote the following. What happened to the 2011 Arab revolutions? They reverberated throughout the Middle East and North Africa and around the globe, influencing movements from Occupy to the Indignados. Even after the Arab Spring had mostly passed, the wave they helped initiate continued in Gezi Park, the Corbin and Sanders campaigns, and Black Lives Matter. Drawing on sources in Arabic, English, and French, Gilbert Ashkar's morbid symptoms relapse in the Arab uprising offers the clearest and most comprehensive analysis of the fate of these revolutions. It is a sobering yet generous account of the Arab people's fight for true liberation and the lessons that have been learned from that struggle. That was from a review that Kevin Anderson wrote in the magazine Jacobin. So, uh, the first thing I should say is, Gilbert, welcome to Chicago. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Danny. It's very embarrassing to speak after, uh, after all this long presentation because you stand to disappoint the listeners. <laughs> I think quite the contrary. So sorry in, in advance if I disappoint you after, after Danny's very generous uh, presentation. I have no concern that, that anyone will leave disappointed this evening. And I should say that it's a particular pleasure to be with you in Chicago, Gilbert, because you know, we've known each other for several years now, but we've never actually seen each other in Chicago, my hometown. Uh, we, I should back up and say Gilbert and I met in Detroit in 2010 during the US Social Forum. Uh, we met at the table. You know how these things are, these huge events. There's a thousand tables, right? Every organization and publisher and tiny magazine has a table at these gatherings. And we met at the table of the magazine Against the Current, or I should say it was the magazine of the organization Solidarity, which publishes the magazine Against the Current. And I had already read The Arabs and the Holocaust, and I thought I saw, I thought I recognized the face of the author, but wait a minute, why would he just be hanging out at this little table at, at, at the U.S. Social Forum? And wait a minute, it was in fact Gilbert Ashkar, and we had a great conversation. I was then working in the labor movement, um, and I said to him, one day I want to bring you to Chicago to give a talk. At that time, it was for the Arabs and the Holocaust. And uh, unfortunately, uh, that never materialized. And then I ended up moving to Denver. And then we brought Gilbert to Denver for a series of lectures and conversations over several days in 2014. And then we organized a conference together in London in the summer of 2014. But this is the first time we're ever seeing each other in Chicago. So this is a great moment for me personally. 
Yeah, I should say I've been invited to, to talk about the book at the University of Chicago, and the the, the late Peter Novik was still there, and, and that was a, that. Yeah, say that, that again. Welcome. Oh, clap! Thank you, thank you very much. Let's give Jubed Ashkar a warm Chicago welcome. Thank you for that, Peter. You're right. That was a uh, major oversight. No problem. No, just mentioning Peter Novik because that was a kind of. I mean, I have a actually, he also blurbed the book. Hmm? He also yes, fashioned yes, yes. a very nice yes, blurb, yes, which but, I but, thought uh, about quoting. That was before we meet, actually, yes. and I met them. Yeah. And also Moishe Postoni, who uh, I met at the, on the same occasion of that visit. And That's we, right. We remained in touch by email by after that. The so late Moishe we Postoni. We are losing good people, and uh, we are. We talked about Joanne Landy uh, yeah, earlier and tonight. And some others whom we would we, we should be losing, we're not. <laughs> Especially at the highest uh, office. Yes. Um, as we sit a few blocks from the, the tower uh, with the name. Um, I, I'd rather forget it. But here's, uh, so here's what we're going to do. I have a few questions for Gilbert, but I want you to prepare your own questions because really this is a forum for all of us. And um, Gilbert will not leave until every question is answered to your satisfaction <laughs> or your money back, all zero dollars that you paid. So, Gilbert, let's start with the title, the, the fabulous title of this book, Morbid Symptoms. Many will know, but some will not, perhaps, that the title comes from this, the following quote from Antonio Gramsci. He wrote, the crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be born. In this interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear. So Gilbert, tell us why you decided to title this book Morbid Symptoms. For, uh, for the reason you just explained by reading the quote, I think this quote uh, summarizes the, the problem of, uh, of, uh, of the Arab, what, what was called the Arab Spring and turned into this uh, rather tragic uh, picture that we have uh, today. And I, for me, the turning point was the, the year 2013. We may discuss this uh, later. But uh, uh, you have in, the, in this uh, uh, situation very clearly uh, an old regime that is no longer sustainable in the sense that it's in deep structural crisis. Um, but at the same time, the alternative to that old regime is, is not there. And just uh, to be clear, when you say old regime, you really mean old regimes. You mean yeah. across the region. Or if you can take it in the singular, in the sense the old order. You know, when yeah. you say the old order, you can also say the old regime. But yes, uh, that means also regimes in the plural. Uh, but they are—they all belong. They have common features. That's why I'm using the term in the in the singular. They have common features, and these common features are central, essential to the the system of states. And uh, uh, may, maybe hold it a little closer. Yes. Okay. Better. And sorry. And uh, uh, this 
this is what is in, in deep structural crisis. So it is dying, but the agony can be very long and indeed uh, very uh, bloody, you know, very uh, tragic as we, ha as we are seeing. The, and the, the, the problem is that these kinds of, of agonies uh, can go for very long until there is an alternative to the kind of, of regime that you have, because, uh, and that's the problem. And and th th this lack of, I mean, this interregnum, as uh, Gramsci put it in this quote that you just read, uh, is what produces what he called morbid symptoms. Although he was not speaking of the kind of morbid symptoms that we are seeing now nowadays at the global level, I, I wrote a, a piece explaining what was or trying to explain what uh, Gramsci was meaning by this uh, uh, famous sentence. Uh, that's published online. It was published in the International Socialist Review, the ISR, and uh, it's available online. Uh, so he was referring to rather, uh, I think, I mean, from you have to decrypt what, what he was writing, because that was in his prison notebooks. So he, he, was, uh, he couldn't... Uh, uh, write very explicitly on many things. But uh, in his case, it was rather a reference to uh, kind uh, to some uh, sectarian ultra-left tendencies. Uh, that's not what we are discussing here. And morbid symptoms, actually, the, the sentence has been quoted very, very, very many times over the years, not in the original sense that probably Gramsci meant, but in the sense of referring to, uh, to right-wing, uh, to uh, uh, you know, this kind of morbidity that we see. And, and of course, in the Middle East, we, 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 we had uh, a lot of that. Uh, probably, the, I mean, not probably, the, 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 the best known and the, 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 the most awful is ISIS. But uh, the Syrian regime, for instance, the, the degree of barbarism of the Syrian regime is not very, I mean, it's not qualitatively different from that of ISIS. Uh, the, uh, you, you've had massacres like the one in Egypt in, uh, uh, in August 2013, which also are, I mean, were of a very high degree of, of barbarism and the kind of repression and dictatorial uh, atmosphere that uh, prevailed in the country since then is a big re regression even compared to the uh, Mubarak years. So we, 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 have, we have very regressive uh, symptoms and uh, phenomena occurring in the region. So that's, that's uh, the meaning of, uh, of, uh, of this title, and the, which is explained by the subtitle remaining in the medical metaphor relapse in the Arab uprising. Yeah, so let's talk about that. You write in the introduction to the book um, that the highly convoluted development of the Arab revolutionary crisis compared to which most other revolutionary upheavals in history look rather uncomplicated. Explain what you mean by that. Um, well, it's, it's definitely a, a very complex uh, uh, part of the world that we're dealing with because the degree at which you have a combination of features belonging to different uh, 
times, different historical epochs are combined in this region. Uh, um, and uh, the, this complexity of the, the uh, let's say, the objective conditions in the region is compounded by the fact that uh, politically, this is a region where the uh, 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 where we have a, a mass opposition that developed over the last few decades, uh, which uh, in uh, in many respects is uh, at least as reactionary as the regimes that it is opposing. If not more reactionary in some cases? And it could be in some cases. I mean, it's difficult to, uh, to, to, to make such because there are just differences. It could be seen as such. Some, many people in the region would see it like this. And that would be a starting point for the kind of positions that you, Danny, uh, have been combating on, on Syria, for instance, where you have a lot of people who would say, well, the alternative in Syria is worse than the regime, so I prefer the regime. You hear the same thing in Egypt, of course, uh, and that's the reason that was given for many, many people to, for the supporting Sisi, uh, the, the, the coup and the after coup, I mean, the, the dictatorial uh, uh, regime that you have today uh, in, uh, in, in Egypt. So that adds a thick layer of complexity over, so another, over the, the, the generally already very complex social political features of the region. Right. So all this yeah, is what I meant by, by what you just read. So just to put a little bit more flesh on the bones of this argument, you're talking about a situation in which you have highly repressive regimes. Some are monarchies, some are republics, and there's the beautiful Arabic term that you uh, mention in the book, which uh, actually is a clever play on the, uh, the fact that many of the republics, so-called, are actually uh, have monarchical in nature and are really family mafia states where the son is groomed to take over from the father, right? And what is the term in Arabic, remind me? Jumrukiya, yeah. That's a contraction of Jumhuriya, which is republic, republic. and Malakiya, which is uh, monarchy. monarchy yes. yes. So you have highly repressive regimes across the region, whether they call themselves monarchies or republics. Highly repressive authoritarian regimes, um, which combine a kind of uh, state capitalism, uh, in some cases oligarchy, uh, with uh, one-party uh, uh, repressive state apparatuses. And what you have, however, on the flip side of the equation is rather than a progressive or emancipatory opposition, although you do have labor unions and NGOs and some left-wing groups across the region, they don't have the kind of mass mobilization that some of the Islamist groups in the region do. And so you have this opposition in many cases, which as you say, is a kind of religious yeah. uh, uh, fundamentalist opposition. Yeah, no, basically it's a triangular situation. That's how I define it. It's not the classical binary opposition between revolution and counter-revolution that you have in most historical revolutionary processes. Here you have a triangular situation with two 
counter-revolutionary poles, two reactionary poles, that is two poles that are essentially opposed to the kind of aspirations that emerge in what was called the Arab Spring. Right. Uh, with agendas which, which are different, but which are both opposed. And, and what they have in common, actually, they, they converge on one thing, that is the Islamic fundamentalist opposition and the regimes. They converge on, on the neoliberal orientation. That's, that's what they have in common. And that's what is at the core of, uh, of this explosion, that is the workings of neoliberalism in the region on a background of very specific kind of states and regimes is what produced the very uh, uh, acute social economic, social economic crisis that exploded in 2011. Now, these two forces that I mentioned uh, uh, are for the continuation of these kinds of, of, of policies. And at the same time, on the one hand, you have repressive regimes that you mentioned of, of various uh, types. On the other hand, you have people uh, whose only program is to Islamize uh, more of Islamization of, of those existing regimes. Because when I say more, that, that's just to point that we are not dealing with secular regimes. No regime in the region is secular in the strict sense of the term. Um, so that's why you have two reactionary poles. And the third pole, which is the weakest one, unfortunately, is the one represented by, I mean, consisting of a kind of, uh, of uh, uh, coalition or de facto coalition of, uh, of a range of forces going from the liberal in the American sense to the radical left, okay? So this liberal left kind of uh, range of forces is what, 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 uh, uh, what actually uh, initiated these uh, processes. And, uh, processes meaning the demonstrations the revolutionary processes in 2010, no, no. 2011. Everywhere, this, is this kind of uh, de forces that took the initiative to uh, uh, launch these uh, mass demonstrations, rallies, and all that. And actually, the Islamic fundamentalist opposition uh, uh, just jumped uh, on the wagon everywhere, just joined, joined the, the movement uh, once the movement had started and started gathering momentum. And some of them with reluctance. There were debates, for example, in the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood yes. about whether to join the demonstration. Yes, there were divisions on that and all that, but basically just to say that that uh, they were not the initiators of no. this big uh, this big movement. They were not the drivers. The, and uh, I mean, even if you look at, uh, at where it started, it started in Tunisia, and that's the first country that uh, toppled a president through a popular uh, uprising in the region. Uh, and if you wonder why. Was it in Tunisia? Why was Tunisia the country that took the lead and showed the example to the rest? And then it snowballed, okay? Um, well, the reason is that that's the country of the region where the left is the strongest in, in uh, relative terms. Strong trade union tradition. You have, it's the only country of the region where you have an, uh, a really autonomous workers' movement 
when we look at the rank and file, the grassroots and the intermediary level, the top leadership was under state control, but not the grassroots. You're talking about the UGTT. Yes, the, 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 the workers' union movement, and it's a very powerful one. Um, and uh, uh, the, you have a, a left, uh, I mean, a, a kind of conglomerate of left-wing forces acting through the union. And they were the uh, driving force of the uprising in, uh, that started in December 2010, actually, in uh, central Tunisia and, and uh, continued over weeks until the president fled the country. But the process, the country kept boiling and uh, toppling one government after the other, actually, for, uh, for several months after that. So, so you see here already, I mean, which kind of forces started all that? Now here also we have the, the, the classical thing, that is the Islamic fundamentalist movement, which belongs to the family of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a regional force, uh, which is backed by Qatar, the Emirate of Qatar. Uh, uh, they joined the, 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 the movement after it had started, when, the, when it, uh, it reached the, 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 the proportions that uh, we've seen. Uh, uh, Qatar played a role in promoting them, especially through Al Jazeera, the uh, network, the TV network, uh, and they managed because they had uh, this backing, television funding and all that, and, well, a network in the country that they could reconstitute after having been repressed for years, uh, they managed to, to take over uh, soon after when you had elections because no one, in, on the, in, I mean, the, the ruling, the former ruling party collapsed and there was no match to the Islamic fundamentalists on, on the left. Okay, so they, they, and you had the same story that repeating itself in, or the same, I mean, occurring in, uh, in Egypt, okay? And, uh, and that's, uh, I mean, progressively with the, uh, the shift in the conditions, we, what we have seen in 2013, where, when you have uh, the turning point, is, a, I mean, after the initial role of left, the left liberal forces, almost everywhere, prominent role in, uh, in starting, initiating, leading, uh, at the beginning, uh, <coughs> these forces were progressively marginalized. Um, uh, due to weakness on the one hand, but also due to lack of political, uh, uh, clear political strategy, lack of, uh, of aspiration to, to project themselves as an alternative to both reactionary poles that I mentioned. And uh, uh, this will lead the situation to, be, to get dominated by a clash of the two remaining poles, the two, the, the old order, the, the old regimes, and their Islamic fundamentalist uh, challengers. And this clash turned, in, in some cases, like the Syrian one, into a, what, uh, borrowing this, uh, the title of, of one uh, of the books uh, you mentioned, a clash of barbarisms. Yeah. Because the, the barbarism of the regime in, in, in repressing the situation created conditions for the emergence of a counter-barbarism, uh, 
for the attract the I mean created conditions for counter barbarism to attract people, and that's how you you got this amazing phenomenon of ISIS that such a you know a barbaric kind of, of group could attract so many people, and, uh, including so many young people from across the region, is quite uh, amazing. But you can understanding on 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 the, the background of. Uh, of this dialectics of of uh, of, uh, of uh, violence and barbarism. So I want to focus on the Syrian <clears throat> case in a moment, but before I do, I want to ask you about one other kind of region-wide dynamic that you talk about in the book. You write the Saudi Kingdom, the Emirate of Qatar, the Islamic Republic of Iran. These three, you call them the linchpins of regional religion-based despotism all compete in supporting various brands of movements covering the full spectrum of Islamic fundamentalism. Again, that's the Saudi Kingdom, the Emirate of Qatar, and the Islamic Republic of Iran. Now, I have two questions about that formulation. One is, what about the UAE, which would seem to deserve a place in this uh, august triumvirate. Uh, the UAE, particularly in the last couple of years since Trump. Yeah, but uh, the the United Arab Emirates uh, is a utterly reactionary uh, player in the region, but it's not an Islamic fundamentalist state. It's not based on Islamic ideology at all. Okay. Uh, unlike Iran, Saudi Kingdom, and Qatar, uh, which is playing this uh, Islamic card, uh, although it doesn't project Qatar, Qatar itself does not project itself as a kind of Islamic regime, but all its policy it's, uh, it's based, on, it's based on, on that and sponsoring the Muslim Brotherhood and other uh, Islamic fundamentalist currents. Actually, the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, are uh, fiercely hostile to uh, to the Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah, they've campaigned yeah. to make them a yeah. terrorist organization. Actually, they are, they are closer to Islamophobia than they are to Islamic fundamentalism. Right, right. No, that's true. Um, although they're aligned, very decidedly aligned with the Saudi Kingdom. Yes, of course. Which is the greatest purveyor yeah, of, course. of a, a particular form of Islamic um, theocracy and fundamentalism in the world. Definitely, definitely. But when it comes to, I mean, what I was referring to with my comment was the yeah. the kind of, of uh, uh, collaboration that occurred between the United Arab Emirates, also through their ambassador in Washington, with uh, Steve Bannon and this kind of, of people uh, in order to, in lobbying to uh, for the, uh, banning the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist uh, organization. Okay. Right. And uh, that was the kind of message that uh, Bush uh, had uh, or brought with, with him when he, uh, in his first visit abroad, which was to the Saudi Kingdom. Right. No, no coincidence. And, uh, Not at all. And that's the, the key reason for the, the, what was called the Qatar crisis. That's right. Which is basically uh, uh, putting pressure on Qatar, trying to force Qatar into stopping its sponsoring of the Muslim Brotherhood. That's what it is about. All the rest is just uh, diversion. Sideshow, yeah. yeah. Let me just be clear, though, that to be against the Muslim Brotherhood as the UAE, the Emirati government is, ferociously, is not incompatible with 
being a purveyor of Islamic fundamentalisms. In the Saudi case, for example, Saudi or the Saudi kingdom is virulently anti-Muslim brotherhood, but is also a purveyor of Wahhabi, Salafi ideology, not only in the region, but globally. So in other words, their opposition to the Muslim Brotherhood has nothing to do with being secular. They are actually Islamists in a, in a, in a, in a highly reactionary way. They just hate the Muslim Brotherhood's particular version of Islamism. You're speaking of the Saudis. The Sa- in the Saudi case. Well, yes, but the Saudis were the sponsor of the Muslim Brotherhood for several decades. Since yes. the founding of the Muslim Brotherhood until 1990, their sponsor was the Saudi Kingdom, not uh, the Emirate of Qatar. That's right. Qatar just uh, seized the opportunity of, uh, of uh, the fact that the Muslim Brotherhood were left without a sponsor after the Saudi Kingdom cut uh, its relations with them in uh, 1990 uh, because they did not uh, support the U.S. intervention uh, in the Gulf against right. Iraq at that time. But, uh, but yes, it's true, but again, your question was about the quote that you read, and I was referring here to three regimes that are based on Islamic fundamentalism. That's yes. precisely the case, and, right. and of course, Saudi Kingdom is very prominent among them, and uh, three uh, key uh, strongholds of reaction and counter-revolution in the region. And this leads to my second question about that, which is more fundamental in a sense. The Saudi-Iranian rivalry has come to, in many ways, define the geopolitics of the Middle East in recent years, particularly uh, in the last uh, few years since, let's say, we can debate when it really becomes the defining fault line, but certainly since the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq um, uh, and its aftermath, the Saudi-Iranian rivalry has come to very much um, Uh, dominate the politics of the region. What's interesting to me about your formulation is that many people around the world, including some on the left, have come to see the Middle East through this prism of the Saudi-Iranian rivalry. And we know that Saudi Arabia is a reactionary monarchy that promotes a particularly reactionary form of Islamism. And we know that Saudi Arabia is aligned with the United States. So we know that the Saudi, that Saudi Arabia and its allies in the Gulf are reactionary forces in the region. But somehow, many people on the left are confused about the role of Iran, Hezbollah, and Syria in this equation because of this language of the axis of resistance, right? So somehow the Saudis are the dark reactionary force allied with the United States and Iran and Hezbollah and Syria are resisting U.S. imperialism and Israeli uh, uh, policies. Your formulation actually bring, ha- casts this story in a very different light because you're talking about Saudi Arabia and Iran as both being purveyors of Islamic fundamentalism of different forms and both being highly reactionary forces in the region. Can you talk about that? I mean, yes, in terms of, uh, of uh, social, ideological kind of, of uh, <coughs> orientations, uh, there's no doubt that Iran is another brand of Islamic fundamentalism, that the Iranian regime is far from being a beacon of uh, progressive, uh, you know, uh, social relations, um, and uh, that's 
although not as crudely reactionary as the Saudi uh, monarchy, and it would be difficult to be uh, uh, more reactionary than the Saudi monarchy. Yes, you've, you've actually characterized the Saudi regime as the most reactionary regime on earth. Yes. Um, so, although Iran is not that uh, reactionary, it is also a very reactionary regime in the sense that it's a theocracy. Actually, it's the only theocracy uh, on earth. I mean, uh, with the exception of the Vatican. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's the only state which is constitutionally ruled by a theologian. The only one, the other one is the Vatican, that's all. But of course, the Vatican is a is no match for, I mean, it's not comparable to, to, to what Iran is as a, as a state. And you can see this is a country, Iran, where you, you've had a number of social explosions over now over the last month, since uh, December last year, very important social movements. Uh, but before that, also we had in 2009, an uh, important uh, uh, political movement that developed there, and that was crushed very severely by the by the regime. So uh, uh, now it's true that this regime is in uh, harsh opposition with the United States and even more so with Israel. Uh, the, the point is that if you look at everything through that kind of prism, with what. Uh, what uh, in some, ter some terminology is called campism. That is, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That kind of logic is what you, you are referring to. That some people would the see, yes, see Iran as a, as a stronghold of, uh, of resistance. Uh, now, the, the Soviet Union, even the Soviet Union, of course, the Soviet Union was at odds with the United States at the global level. Uh, the, the, does it mean that the Soviet Union was a, you know, a progressive democratic kind of regime? Definitely not. It, it had uh, uh, repressed uh, workers' movements many times in Eastern Europe, uh, for instance. That is even the Soviet Union, mind you. I mean, we're speaking of something that, in terms at least of, of, uh, of social economic structure it was far less, uh, uh, let's say, how to exploitative uh, than uh, what Iran, the kind of Iran model is, and culturally, at least culturally, more, much more progressive hmm? from, uh, I mean, in, in the general sense of culture. The women issue, if you take the, the status of women as a touchstone, and it's a major touchstone, uh, Marx once said, very nice uh, sentence, which I, I won't quote it in the whole because it, it includes a joke, but he, he said social progress can be measured by the social position of women. That's a very deep uh, issue. So from that angle, uh, uh, you know, I Iran is definitely not uh, on the progressive side of history. So let's dig in to some of the specifics with respect to Syria. Approximately half of this book um, deals with the Syrian tragedy. In, in an interview that you gave to Jacobin magazine, Gilbert, you, um, you addressed what you called the myth of the Assad regime as an anti-imperialist force. And this is a myth, you know, that I think people who know a lot about Syria um, understand uh, how 
what a, what a fiction this is, actually, um, what a bad joke it is to think of the Assad regime as anti-imperialist. But, but there are a lot of people, sadly, on the, on the anti-imperialist left who, who either view the Assad regime as some sort of bulwark against Western imperialism or are just confused because they've heard this or it seems somehow that there's something anti-imperial because the imperialists are somehow aligned against the Assad regime. The Assad regime talks about the axis of resistance. They're aligned with Iran. Iran is, etc. So this was a devastating answer that you gave in the Jacobin where you just laid out like a 10, 12 point explanation of how the Assad regime is not anti-imperialist. Could you give us a brief version of that explanation? Sure. <clears throat> Let me start by saying that even if the Assad regime were anti-imperialist, that wouldn't mean that the correct position is to support this regime against its own people. As I said, I mean, uh, people had more reasons to believe that the Soviet Union was progressive or whatever. Some people believed that, that it was the fatherland of socialism, as it, it used to be called. Of course, uh, I mean, uh, that, that's very flawed perspective. But even if you believe that uh, about any, any country, the, the, the key issue is what is the determining in the positions you take? Are you determining your positions on the basis of values and then which values or you are determining your positions on the basis of anti-imperialism on the logic of the enemy of my enemy the left left-wing position in my view is one that is based on values and these values freedom democracy equality okay these values are fundamental and when I have when you have a popular uprising demanding any of these values against a regime that is repressing these values whatever the regime is when it comes to imperialism and the rest becomes secondary in determining your position in the face of what is happening your your duty is one of solidarity with the people the people demanding democracy, freedom, equality. Which the okay. Syrian people did. Exactly. Precisely all, in all the terms exactly. that the Tunisian sure. and sure. Egyptian people did, the same slogans. Sure. sure. Now, this said, uh, the, the Syrian regime is a very opportunistic regime. Opportunistic. Yes, that is. You could describe the Iranian regime as ideologically um, committed to some degree of hostility towards the United States and, of course, towards Israel. Genuinely, that's part of their ideology. Okay? That's not part, uh, not, that's not a genuine part of the ideology of the Syrian regime. The Syrian regime, I mean, that's, uh, we have the son now continuing the father. It's basically the same regime. The father, uh, um, intervened in, 19, in 1976 in my country, Lebanon, to prevent the coalition of the Palestinian resistance and the Lebanese left from defeating the right wing, including fascist forces, 
uh, in Lebanon. In 76, the, 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 the Syrian army entered Lebanon to crush the left and the, the left, uh, the Lebanese left and Palestinian movement uh, alliance. Uh, uh, then you have a, a whole history of such position. In 1982, when Israel invaded Lebanon and uh, expelled the PLO, the Palestinian movement, from the southern half of Lebanon, this was completed right after by the Syrian regime in expelling the same PLO from the northern half, the remnant of the country. You have, and later on, the Syrian regime supported one of its client forces in Lebanon, the Amal movement, which is a Shia sectarian movement, in the war it waged against the Palestinian camps. And all this will culminate in the Syrian regime taking part in the war against Iraq in 91 under US uh, overlordship. Okay? People sometimes forget that, that Syria was allied with the yes. United States with George yeah. W. George H. <coughs> w. Bush in his war exactly. Operation Desert Storm. Now, this position of joining the war against Iraq, which was a kind of... Uh, Iraq. Iraq. 1991. Operation yeah. Desert Storm. The, the Iraqi regime was a kind of uh, brother enemy of the uh, Syrian regime because there are two wings of the historically the same party, the Ba'ath Party, but they, are, they were very hostile to, to, to each other. And this went to the, to the point of, of the, the Syrian regime joining the war against Iraq. That war, if you remember, uh, was waged for, between quote marks, the liberation of Kuwait after the invasion of Kuwait by Iraq. And uh, Hafiz al-Assad, the father of the present uh, Syrian president, uh, was keen on getting, you know, Gulf funding and all that, and so he joined that war. If the Sun did not join the Second War, the occupation of Iraq, um, that was because that went too far for what a regime like that can uh, accept. The Second War was one of regime change between quote marks with the United States invading a country ruled by the Ba'ath and overthrowing that regime. That the Syrian Ba'ath regime could not follow. But it That's did why cooperate. With, not with the war, no. but it cooperated with the rendition, CIA renditions program, the war on terror, um, engaging in uh, all sorts of dark, uh, uh, the, the that's black before. sites, that's, torture. That's before the occupation of Iraq. Before 2003, they had all the all kinds of uh, of collaboration between the Syrian regime and the United States. But after 2003, the relations between the two sides deteriorated um, because of the attitude that the Syrian regime took on the issue of, of the invasion. Actually, the invasion of Iraq uh, was not endorsed really, or was not enthusiastically approved. To, I mean, put it let's put it that way by any Arab regime. The Egyptian regime, the Saudi Kingdom, all that, they were very reluctant at this idea of the occupation of Iraq, of the toppling of Saddam Hussein. And why were they reluctant about that? For the very reason 
why Bush Sr. had not overthrown Saddam Hussein and actually had let him recuperate and crush the popular uprising that happened in, in the country, in the North and the South. That reason was the lack of an alternative, a pro-US alternative, and the, the, the high likelihood to see Iran becoming the influential force in the country. And that's what happened. You know, that's what happened after 2003. I mean, the occupation of Iraq will remain in history as the, 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 the uh, most uh, important uh, failure in uh, US imperial policy. I mean, that's amazing that, the, that this country gets occupied for so many years and the, uh, the United States leaves the country without achieving, having achieved any of its uh, goals. Strengthens Iran and leads to the rise of ISIS. Yes, bequeaths a country uh, to Iran. I mean, Iran, that's why you even have, you know, uh, there's a big trend towards conspiracy theory in the region. So many people believe that this was a conspiracy between the United States and Iran. Yeah, the Saudis to, promote to, this view. To control Iraq. Of course. You know? yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's a very common view, especially. Yeah, in that's yeah. You have a lot. I mean, of course, it doesn't hold water, but no. But, but it, one can understand the motivation for such views or the reason why such views, because it's difficult for some people to believe that the U.S. government can be dumb. <laughs> yeah. So they always believe that uh, there's there are big conspiracies, you know, that uh, at all levels including 9-11, that, that was a conspiracy by, by, by I mean, you, you know, yeah. the, all the conspiracy theories about that. Right. So, so yes, that's a, that's a point. All right, so there's the myth of the Assad regime as, a, as an, as an anti-imperialist force. What about the myth of the Assad regime as a secular bulwark against religious fanatics? This is a very common view yeah. amongst people who don't know much about the region. They're not sure about the details of the Syrian conflict. They just know that there's a lot of religious fanatics trying to overthrow the Assad regime, and Assad is somehow secular, and so they're kind of they their their center of gravity is with him. Well, you have you have two points in this regard. One is that uh, Assad uh, Jr. Bashar al-Assad. Uh, during his first decade in power, which is just before the explosion, is someone who deliberately opened the door to uh, development of, uh, of some brands of Salafism in, in his country and, and Islamization. Mm -hmm. You have uh, research that has been done on that. Uh, which translates in, the, you know, in a number of, of uh, religious indicators. Uh, and he was actually, he built a very close connection with the Gulf countries, especially with Qatar. He had very close connection also with Turkey. I mean, all this was before 2011. Yeah. And people now project what's happening now on the, on the past. I mean, or they don't know what, what existed before. Um, that's on the one hand, but on the other hand, to believe that you are bulwark of uh, secularism when you completely depend for the persistence of the, your regime 
on uh, on Iran the Islamic and, on, Republic and, and on the party of God on Hezbollah and such uh, uh, forces is such uh, you know it's uh, it's so much absurd you know that, that uh, it's uh, it's beyond understanding that anyone could uh, could you know uh, uh, give that as an argument for supporting I mean give secularism as an argument for supporting the, the Syrian regime. No, I think that's a very important point. People often, when people talk about the jihadi Salafi forces, the foreign fighters that have flooded into Syria against the Assad regime, um, they often leave out, they're only talking about the Sunni foreign fighters. They're not talking about the other jihad, if you will, the transnational Shia jihad where you have Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps officers, you have Iraqi Shia militia fighters, you have even you have Hezbollah, of course, you have uh, even mercenaries from Afghanistan and Pakistan fighting in this transnational Shia jihad orchestrated by the Islamic Republic of Iran, but somehow that's to support a secular regime. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 a very selective reading of, of of the term secular. There's another sense in which the Assad regime has been in bed with jihadism, which is the and you talk about it in the book that the Assad regime released a number of jihadis that it had in prison during the U.S. occupation of Iraq, and then again when they came back to Syria and some of them returned to prison, they were again released into uh, the streets of uh, various Syrian cities to flood the uprising and give it a more jihadi character. Yes, I mean, the, the <clears throat> there's a whole uh, history of relations between the Syrian regime and uh, various forms of uh, jihadism. Uh, at some point, the regime was uh, letting uh, Al-Qaeda-type forces enter Iraq through its borders with with Iraq and build connections in that regard, which are also reflected in WikiLeaks. You know, people make a lot of uses of WikiLeaks, uh, but just select what what uh, fit their narratives and don't see other issues. Uh, and through through WikiLeaks, you, you could see uh, reports about uh, meetings between counterterrorism uh, people from Washington. And uh, their, uh, you know, the, the Syrian uh, intelligence services, and the intelligence services uh, boasting about the fact that uh, they infiltrated uh, the, 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 the Al Qaeda and such groups, and they, they, they know more about them than the United States because of their methods in in doing that. Um, so there is a lot of manipulation involved in that regard, and there were tensions for a while between. Uh, uh, um, even Iran itself, uh, or the government in Baghdad, the Iraqis, and Damascus, mm -hmm. for the role Damascus was playing in, uh, in you know, letting the jihadis enter, come from abroad, and enter uh, Iraq from, from Syria. So that stopped after a while, and that's when they started putting people in jail. Yeah. And these, <laughs> these are the people that were released in the summer of 2011, at the very moment when the regime was arresting by the hundreds and thousands uh, people, you know, fighting for democracy, 
secularism non-violently uh, non-violently of course at this at that very moment the regime released from jail uh, those uh, jihadists they, they were keeping and later on you will find them at the head I mean uh, in the leadership of uh, the key Islamic uh, fundamentalist armed <coughs> groups that formed in the country later on now why did the regime do so that's quite obvious and that's what <coughs> I, I, I refer to by using the formula the preferred enemy yes because such forces are the preferred enemy of the Syrian regime. Uh, had the Syrian regime been facing consistently an opposition dominated by Democrats, secular people, feminists, you name it, it would have been much more of uh, a problem for the regime and it would have had much more sympathy in Western public opinion, thus putting pressure on Western governments for some form of support, of real support, not the fake support that the Obama administration uh, gave to the Syrian opposition. Uh, so by releasing the jihadists, by pushing towards the militarization of the conflict and a specific role of, of such groups, the regime was creating the, 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 the scenario that fitted its With interest its best. Yes. Now, on the other hand, you had also a convergence here yeah. between the regime and the supporters of the opposition in the Gulf. Forces like Qatar and Saudi Kingdom were, had also an interest and in that converged with the regime in promoting Islamic fundamentalism on the ground. Because what is the preferred enemy of the Syrian regime is the preferred friend for, for them. There are no friends of revolutions, no friends of, of democratic revolutions. Counter, no they're counter-revolutionary. They are deeply counter-revolutionary. And a, a democratic revolution in Syria is of course a threat in the first place to the Syrian regime. But it's also a threat to these monarchies that supported the opposition to the Syrian regime. So they supported it to co-opt it, to pervert it. To Islamize to, it. To turn it into palatable force, uh, 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 something that politically is palatable to them and no threat to what they represent. Right. And these Islamic fundamentalist forces are no threat uh, uh, to the uh, monarchies except when, like ISIS, they can go to the very extreme of, of uh, uh, regarding the monarchies themselves as their uh, as targets and yeah. enemies. So this served the interests of both the Assad regime and the Gulf monarchies in their different forms of reactionary uh, counter-revolution. Yeah, we're going to actually get to all of these questions in just a second. I just have a couple more for Gilbert, so hold, hold your fire or hold your thought. Um, now, Gilbert, the third major myth that you dispel about Syria, this is a really important one, the myth that the United States has been hell-bent on regime change and toppling the Assad regime from the get-go. You systematically de dismantle this myth in the book. Can you please review yeah, that? I mean, <clears throat> well, that's completely counterfactual. I mean, to, 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 to. Uh, first of all, Obama 
you know, uh, made it a big point of pride to, to, to that he uh, was not, uh, he had not been in support of regime change in Iraq and is no supporter of regime change in general. So to believe that Obama was just continuing the Bush administration is not to understand anything about what's happening. He came with a different uh, agenda, uh, which translated actually, for instance, in the case of Iran, with a conciliatory policy that resulted in this uh, nuclear deal that uh, Trump uh, rejected uh, recently. Um, so, the, now, people have been, let's say, confused by the fact that Obama, despite all that, took part in the bombing in Libya. But he did so uh, as part of a general perspective of co-opting the Arab uprising. So he had to do something there and prevent uh, a possible massacre that Gaddafi was uh, threatening the Libyan population with. Um, but he also did so in order to try to control the uprising. Because Libya is an oil state, it's an important state, therefore, from the point of view of US interests, and an uprising that would go you know, out of control is something very dangerous. So the bombing, even the, 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 the ways of the bombing in Libya, which were low intensity and all that, were meant at trying to control the insurgency and create the conditions for uh, uh, a, a kind of compromise had Gaddafi been more flexible and uh, stepped down and handed power to his son. That's what Western capitals wanted uh, because they looked, they saw the son as the good, the good, the, the, the good man there. So, but that failed miserably because it all collapsed. And this collapse, this in Libya, just reinforced Obama's reluctance against direct intervention on the ground anywhere, or against the taking the risk of the collapse of any state in the region. So when it came to Syria, which, on the other hand, and that's not a minor uh, detail, is not an oil state, because when you look at the map of US intervention, Kuwait, Iraq, uh, Libya, that uh, smacks uh, of oil. Uh, for, in the case of Syria, the main concern, and that's very clearly stated in, in a lot of statements, in uh, even uh, uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, memoir as a Secretary of State and all that, is we all agreed that we shouldn't, I mean, the priority was not to let the state, the Syrian state collapse, okay? What they wanted was a, a compromise between the Syrian regime and the opposition. And the model for Obama, which he quoted, was the Yemen model. Uh, of course, he, he was saying that before the civil war, before the collapse of this Yemen solution, as he called it, it collapsed in 2014, he was referring to what happened. He said that in 2012. The Yemen solution is what we want for Syria. Now, the, the, um, the Washington trained and armed some groups in Syria to fight against ISIS. 
and with a single issue agenda. You fight against ISIS, you don't fight against the regime. That's why this never uh, took, took off really. Uh, it was very limited. There were some very limited support given to the official opposition in Syria. But the most important intervention of Washington in the Syrian conflict was in favor of the regime. It is what allowed the regime to resist, prevail, and go on the counteroffensive. And this intervention is the veto, Washington's veto, on any deliveries of anti-aircraft weapons to the Syrian regime. The to the edge of the Syrian opposition. Uh, the Syrian opposition. The CIA was monitoring the borders, the Turkish border and Jordanian border, to prevent any such deliveries. Now, that's why the Syrian opposition never had, with maybe a very uh, tiny exception, uh, anti-aircraft weapons. And Assad was able to use even helicopters. It's a relatively easy targets if you have even, you know, no, not sophisticated anti-aircraft weapons, even helicopters, barrel bombs, that's most of the bombing was done like this. That's because the, the others didn't have anything. If you look at the map, uh, or uh, pictures actually of, of, of Syria, uh, photographs or satellite photos, you see the regions held by the regime are almost intact. The Syrians held by the opposition are like uh, Dresden uh, after, I mean, the Second World War, flattened completely destroyed. That's because only one side had, had the, air, the, power. The air power. And, and, and that was thanks to Obama. Turkey produces Stinger missiles, those missiles that were provided by uh, uh, um, the United States to the Afghan Mujahideen and were instrumental in, in creating problems for the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. So uh, a more sophisticated version of these missiles is produced in Turkey, but it's under US license. And Turkey was not allowed to give such weapons to the Syrian opposition, although Turkey and Qatar were the main backers of this opposition. So that's the main role. I mean, if, if you had, if you put in the balance everything the Obama administration did in Syria, by far the most decisive act was this vetoing. And that was in favor of the regime, not in the favor of the opposition. And that was actually a complicity uh, of the o Obama administration. I mean, I have uh, very harsh terms about Obama because I believe that he bears a huge responsibility, a moral responsibility in, in the, 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 the crushing of Syria and its people. There's a lot more to be said on that, and I have a longer list of questions, but I think it's time now to move to audience Q&A so that we can get people involved. And should we send this microphone around, Beverly? Okay, so Beverly is gonna come get this microphone. And please um, ask your question clearly and briefly. Um, so, it's seen that right now, um, there's a sense uh, in the Middle East when you know talking to intellectuals and just average uh, citizens that there's this ideological vacuum. Basically, Islamism has failed, you know, with uh, you know 
top label uh, democratically elected um, brotherhood government in uh, Egypt. Uh, you know, the vision of uh, establishing emirates or caliphates has also failed. Um, the left is incredibly unpopular because it is associated with being supportive of, uh, it is often associated with being supportive of uh, oppressive uh, movements. I mean, the communist parties uh, in uh, the Middle East uh, have often backed certain dictators uh, when they perceive it to be secular. What do you think can be done now to kind of uh, offer a new vision that would be that people in the Middle East, particularly the youth or the majority of the population, would find attractive and would be an alternative to you know, the failures <coughs> of uh, Islamism, leftism. Uh, you know, liberalism is also not having a great time because of the hypocrisy of the West and you know, lack of uh, empathy towards the suffering of people in the region. What can be done to kind of offer an ideology, something that people can support and cling to? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the issue is not an ideology. That's not the problem. I mean, the uh, people are not looking for ideologies in the sense that one could believe you you are using. Um, it's more a set of values that the le that this left liberal range of forces represent and that are in tune with the aspirations of the new generation as revealed or expressed in the, what was called the Arab Spring in 2011. Um, the point is how to translate this into political strategies. And that's the problem of, uh, of this left liberal range of forces in the region. And you can take every country and, and see the problem they failed in projecting themselves as an alternative to both counter-revolutionary poles. That is, of course, alternative to the regimes and also alternative to the Islamic fundamentalist uh, oppositions where they uh, exist. Um, instead of that, in many cases, we've seen them allying with one of these two poles against the other and in, uh, in some cases, Align with one and then align with the other, you know, as is the case in Egypt, and that's this disastrous kind of uh, of, uh, of policies, and that's why they fail uh, in constituting a third pole. That is, you have a triangle politically speaking, but in terms of forces, one of the angles was extremely weak compared to the two others, and that's why. What finally prevailed was this binary clash between two counter-revolutionary poles, with, with the one representing the revolutionary aspirations marginalized in this in this regard. So the point is a matter. I mean, the issue is a matter is an issue of political strategy. You know, that's the key issue here. Well, there are other issues connected, organization, the rest. But the main issue is really one of political strategy. had a phrase that is not enough for theory to strive for reality. Reality also has to strive for theory. 
uh, which he meant that there needs to be a cohesive, strong enough social force that can actualize an alternative to reactionary forces. Um, and of course, we know what he identified that is, the proletariat, et cetera, et cetera. Um, even if we take Egypt as the one example, because after all, that was the most promising and also maybe the most disappointing of this whole experience of the Arab Spring, is there the existence of a cohesive, strong enough social force that can successfully battle the two counter-revolutionary ideologies that you outlined? That is, the left liberal spectrum that you've talked about, what substantial support within the social base of society did it actually have, or does it actually have? And in lieu of that, what strategy can possibly be effective? Um, well, we, we have uh, an indicator of, uh, of, of that in, uh, in the case of Egypt. Uh, in the uh, first round of presidential election 2012, uh, because we don't have polls or whatever that could tell you things. But here, we had uh, de facto uh, representation, if you want, of, of the political currents in the country. And the big surprise of this uh, first round of the presidential election then was the third candidate, I mean, the, 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 the one who came in the third position after the candidates of the, the military and the Muslim Brotherhood. The third uh, person was the big surprise because he, he started with very low expectations and he had ridiculous means compared to the, not only the, these two, the two I mentioned, but even the, uh, let's say, the, uh, the softer version of Islam represented by another candidate and the softer version of the old regime that was also there. So you had four, at least four candidates with much more means than what he had. And this he is a, a Nasserist a candidate, a kind of reconstructed Nasserism, which is uh, democratic, not in favor of uh, the uh, dic uh, military dictatorship of, of Nasser's time. Um, and, uh, and to the surprise of everyone, in the, the last few days, last couple of weeks before the first round election, his, his uh, popularity started, I mean, the indicators started showing that he, he, he was going to, to get a lot of votes. And he came third with a relatively narrow margin of difference with the two others, uh, uh, getting some 20% of the vote. And the plurality of vote, the largest vote, in Cairo and Alexandria, the two main urban concentrations of the country. And that was, you know, um, someone, it was, a, if you want an analogy, that's a Bernie Sanders Egyptian version. That's how he appeared. Someone calling himself socialist, you know, uh, belonging to this kind of project, uh, anti-imperialist, anti-Zionist, uh, you name it, you know. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and he had a tremendous popularity, especially among the young people, especially among the young people. So that shows you the potential. Negatively, you can also show, show an indication in the uh, fact that after the initial wave of the uprising and the, the, when you had the spring going on 
and where you had very high participation in elections. Now, with this reactionary phase in which we are, the rates of uh, participation in elections have fallen tremendously, especially among the young people. And if you take even a country like Tunisia, the last, well, there were municipal elections held in Tunisia, you had less than one third of, uh, of participation rate. And when it comes to the young people, it's overwhelming. Abstention is more than overwhelming. Okay, even in the previous election, parliamentary elections in Tunisia, 70% uh, of the young people under the age of 30 did not take part in the vote. But that's another way of putting the same problem, that is, they don't see an offer that corresponds to their aspiration. Okay, so that shows you that there is a potential, very big potential, because the offers that exist are the old regime and the Islamic uh, fundamentalist opposition. But they, they see no attractive offer representing their aspirations. And when they see it, as is the case of 2012 in Egypt, they vote massively. So that shows you the potential. Let me borrow the microphone for one second. I'm going to interject a very quick question my, of my own here, because on this, in, in, in very much on the heels of the last two questions, a lot of people on the Western left, Gilbert, who don't follow Middle Eastern politics closely, but they, there's one movement in the Middle East that has caught the imaginations, captured the imaginations of many leftists around the world, and that is the Kurds in northern Syria of Rojava, or Rojava. Um, and it's a very complicated story, but on page 49 of your book, you write, without falling into what David Harvey rightly called the romance that some people on the left in Europe and North America may have that may have that oh well this is the place finally okay so you write without falling into that it is hardly disputable that the autonomous administration created by the PYD in Syria's three Kurdish majority cantons since 2012 if not the beacon of radical democracy that some wishful Western observers believe it to be, is, from a social and gender relations perspective, the most progressive experience to emerge to this day in any of the six countries that were the scenes of the 2011 uprising. So without getting, I mean, the story of Rojava is enormously complicated. There's a pretty big literature on it, and I do encourage people to check out the book of Meredith Tax um, on, based on her travels in Rojava. There's a website called ROAR, R-O-A-R, that covers the politics of Rojava very closely. But recently, Gilbert, there's been a lot of controversy about the situation in Afrin, in Syria, with the Turkish government's invasion of Afrin, the split between Kurdish and Syrian Arab forces. Help us, help us think through these, on the one hand, this romantic idealization of the Syrian-Kurdish experiment, and on the other hand, um, the realpolitik going on on the ground. Right. Um, <clears throat> well, we can start with the romanticization or idealization, which I find all the more um, astonishing that this time it's not coming from, you know, 
uh, hardline Leninists admiring uh, the, the revolution there, but anarchists. Uh, because the distance between the kind of modern anarchists we have in, in mind and the reality is, is far bigger in that, in that regard. So, no, we are dealing here with an organization which has a, a long history of uh, political military struggle uh, with this kind of centralization that you have, uh, kind of centralism and hierarchy now uh, that you have in, in, in that regard. And, uh, and I'm, I'm here mainly speaking of the, the, uh, the uh, let's say, the, the mother organization, which is in Turkey, uh, the, the PKK, uh, which is the main inspirer of the PYD uh, in, uh, in Syria. Um, now, they, they are well-organized groups, and uh, uh, to, to believe that the, 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 the kind of uh, rule that they set in the areas under their control is, is the, the, the new version of the Paris Commune, you know, is, 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 is quite out of, of touch with, with reality. But uh, this being said, and as I wrote what you called, uh, that remains indeed the most progressive, the most advanced uh, uh, form of organization you have in the region in the framework of this big uprising. And again, Again, the touchstone of, of the gender issue is very important, and I can, some people dismiss that as 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 comedy. I mean, it's not. I mean, this is you know the, 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 the uh, whether what the PKK have been doing through the coalition in which it's active in Turkey, the HDP, with gender parity and all that or what they, the, the, the Syrian counterpart, the, the counterpart in Syria is, is doing in, in Rojava and the country. That's much more advanced than anything we've seen in the region. And for, I mean, for that matter, even for, for uh, more advanced than anything we see even in Western countries on the left. So that's very good, very positive experiences in that regard. Um, so the point is, of course, they, they have committed a number of uh, uh, repressive excesses and, uh, and uh, behaviors that were even uh, criticized by human rights organization. So that points to a problem that this is not the, uh, the kind of uh, utopian uh, radical democracy that some people believe it is. But you know, uh, you take that into consideration it remains that they are fighting for a just cause, and uh, m most of what they do is uh, fighting for a just cause. In the face of the Turkish government, I'm unconditionally on their, on, on their, on their side. If tomorrow the Assad regime is attacking them, I'm, I will also defend them unconditionally. And as we were discussing about anti-imperialism and all that, if ever they, they commit uh, uh, you know, uh, I mean, they uh, repress people uh, in the regions under their control or, or commit any acts <coughs> of, uh, of oppression. This must also be denounced, okay, because <coughs> we adhere to values. We don't adhere to, to any groups, okay. Consistent. 
No, of course. So that's uh, that's uh, that's the point. Now, when it comes, you know, to, I mean, we should also know what what to criticize or not to criticize in that. That is, um, after all, the Paris Commune that I mentioned was a short-lived experience uh, that ended tragically. Uh, but we, we don't have longer than that uh, forms of control, especially when with uh, military forces that uh, uh, created uh, ideal democracies. Uh, so from that angle, they are no exception in that regard. Uh, and the, the, the Bolshevik rule also was not uh, was far from being the, the kind of uh, ideal democracy that some be people uh, uh, portrayed as having been. Uh, that's also not not true. The point, no. Now, Afrin and, uh, and and the rest. This is a population that has been oppressed for very long in Syria. Kurdish population. The Kurdish population, deprived of basic rights. Many of them even deprived of citizenship, deprived of cultural rights, and the rest. Uh, with a regime which is an Arab nationalist regime. <coughs> Uh, like the one in Iraq, also the Bas, the two Bas, uh, tried to Arabize the Kurdish regions with, uh, you know, ethnic engineering or you know, demographic engineer shifting populations and the rest, uh, implanting Arab peasants in their region. You know, you, you've had a number of things like that. Now, if this Kurdish force uh, is doing in reverse some of that towards some of the Arab uh, uh, people living under the regions. This must be criticized, but keeping in mind the history of that, okay? And, uh, and the point is that uh, on this issue, uh, uh, in the Syrian opposition, uh, there is little real acknowledgement and recognition of the rights of the Kurdish uh, people. There are still attitudes which, are, which don't go beyond the limits of speaking of, okay, cultural rights and the rest. No real recognition of the right uh, to self-determination uh, of, of, of the, the Kurdish people. Let's go to uh, another question. Maybe someone who hasn't already asked a question. Mark, maybe, you know, let's, let, let's hear from some people who haven't actually had a chance to, to ask questions yet. Go ahead, Bev. <coughs> I want to go back to that very, very short chapter I had before it started about hope. Sort of past. Where's the good news? Um, as somebody who studies social movements, I'm not under any illusion that you have demonstrations of social transformation within 48 hours. I look, for example, at the fact that the abolition movement began in England with the Quakers trying to stop slavery. It took 50 years. Then it took about another 50 years to, uh, for our civil war, and the legacy of racism is still with us. Um, part of the point that you were making, and something very important to me, is the importance of youth because those demonstrations was very clear in Tunisia, very clear in Egypt, etc. So that the bulk of the movement, not the majority of the people, but the bulk of the movement does tend to be the young people. And going back to what's already been said, what you were saying about Tunisia, uh, which was supposedly the best example, the last time I was there, bear in mind, 
my French is not fluent. But bear in mind, one of the things that I noticed when I talked to many of the people who had been active in the they were demoralized. They were completely demoralized. Yes, we had our revolution, but things are no better now because generally after revolutions, things decline. Now, I would like to think of youth as a progressive force, as we've seen in this country, the squashing of the burning people. Uh, we do see that there is a force there. But, you know, I would like to, going back to the notion that if we don't have hope, what are we doing on the left? But where are the forces that you were mentioning, for example, in the Egyptian situation of the burning? But where is, where is something to give us some kind of hope that someday all this stuff is going to be over? And going back to your title about morbidity, uh, one of my colleagues had a better way of describing what happens during the interregnum. Weird shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you. Well, as a sociologist, I'm sure you know that uh, mentioning the fact that uh, most people in a revolution and uprising are young, is almost a tautology. You know? yeah. I mean, that all revolutions are essentially involving a younger generation. We haven't seen revolutions of the old people. We, we might come to that. <laughs> we might come to that with the aging of populations. But uh, so, so, yeah, describing it as a youth revolution was almost you know, tautologic. I mean, didn't, uh, that applies to any, any revolution, actually. Um, now, the, uh, I mean, Tunisia that you mentioned is actually one of the rare countries where people can point to, the, to a positive balance sheet of what has happened since 2011. In the sense that you have democratic gains, real democratic gains, in Tunisia that were essentially preserved until now. Doesn't mean that they will be preserved forever, but they have been preserved until now. Um, uh, but the, the key issue, and that brings us back to what, was, what happened in 2011. I mean, my previous book, this is just a sequel, but where my, previ it's, my previous book is where I analyze the, the roots of the big explosion. Uh, the social, economic, and all that, the roots of that. Uh, it, it's called the people want. Um, and there, I defined what started in 2011 as a long-term revolutionary process, which is rooted essentially in social, economic issues before anything else. Of course, it took a political dimension. Uh, that's very normal. But the, 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 the root causes are social, economic. And here, in that regard, yes, Tunisia, like any other, has not solved anything when it comes to the social economic issue. The problem is still the same. It has actually worsened due to the uprising and the turmoil itself. Uh, so there, there's, in, from that angle, there's no improvement. There's an improvement in democratic gains and all that. But I mean, in the last, uh, uh, at the end of the day, if your problem is uh, is eating, well, if if you are freer to express your anger, that's good. But that's far from being enough. That's that's uh, the the problem. Um, now, <clears throat> here, I mean, the, the issue of Tunisia is more complex. It's a, it's a it's a quite a specific case because uh, there is a 
inability of the left, the existing debt, the really existing left that you have in Tunisia, to project itself as a, an alternative project that is inspiring in any manner. Uh, it's not. And that's why they are limited to a certain uh, fraction when they manage to get a number of MPs and all that. But uh, uh, that's not even what, uh, what the Nasserist uh, candidate that I mentioned in Egypt uh, <clears throat> managed to attract a sympathy. That is, they, the Tunisian, in relative terms, the Tunisian left has much more, compared to the country, much more means than, than what this uh, Nasserist candidate had in Egypt. And yet, he had much more sympathy because well, he could project, I mean, that's, we know that's important nowadays, he could project an attractive uh, image on the left. That's also part of the thing, I spoke of political strategy. They have this problem, the Tunisian left, they have a problem of political strategy, very obvious, but they also have on the top of that a problem of image. Their image is politically not of this century. Hmm. Um. I saw several other hands up here. Yes, this young woman right here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I am asking this question out of just being a... Can you put the microphone a little closer, yes. sir? Um, Better. I am asking this question out of being a um, younger Arab person who grew up in a time where, you know, I kind of wish sometimes that I, that I grew up earlier. Anyway, um, I do want to go back to the 1980s and talk about more about the Syrian regime, the anti-imperialism, you know, those points that you discussed earlier. I guess what I'm really confused about is, I grew up listening to my dad always saying that politics is about benefits, it's about what's in it for me. And about the Syrian regime and um, the, the, the PLO, the Palestinian issue, the struggle, you know, the whole story, what was, in it for the Syrian regime back in the 1980s to go into Lebanon, whether it was Sabra and Jatila, Bujid Barajna, all of these, what was in it for them? Why did they stand then there and why do they stand today here where they are today? Um, just asking for a Excuse my generation. The Syrian, uh, I mean, Hafiz Lassad uh, was a very Machiavellian uh, politician. And uh, uh, I mean, he had uh, the interest of his regime was his main concern, of course. And in all his interventions, uh, he, I mean, he was motivated by getting something out of it. Like in 76, when he intervened in, uh, in Lebanon, uh, that was, of course, with the U.S. and Israeli green light. Otherwise, the Syrian army could not have entered Lebanon. Green uh, light, you said? Yeah, yeah, green light. Yeah, of course, uh, because they, uh, the United, both the United States and Israel didn't want their allies in Lebanon to, to, to be crushed, to be defeated. And that's what he, uh, he came into Lebanon to do, to rescue the allies of the United States and Israel in Lebanon. That's what he did. And for that, he was expecting uh, to be rewarded, you know, uh, by the United States, including uh, 
going back, uh, you know, to uh, uh, the, the kind of uh, 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 peace process with Israel that he was uh, looking forward to, and uh, the, the prospect of recuperating the the the, uh, the, 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 the yes the territory occupied the Syrian territory occupied by Israel in 1967, and uh, soon after uh, he got very much disappointed because the year after the uh, Begin, the Likud, the right wing of the Zionist movement, won the election for the first time in Israel. And all this collapsed, and the, the, the next step will be the separate Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty sponsored by Washington. And there he turned against Washington again. And a few years later, you have a new shift which will lead to his participation in the war led by Washington against Iraq. And so you see zigzags. Uh, if, you tr if you try to, to understand what's, I mean, is there any unifying logic behind this very contrasting position? Well, there is. It's just, it's, it's not principles. Don't look at it uh, from that angle or anything like that. It's just a man without, uh, you know, without any scruples or whatever, just a purely Machiavellian politician trying to promote the interests of his regime uh, in the best way he could. And one day he could play it uh, anti-Israel and anti-US, the other day he could play it uh, pro-US and pro-Israel. That's why I said it's a very opportunistic regime. Don't try to, I mean, it doesn't fit any Definition. I, I may, even the distinction between this regime and the Iranian one. Uh, the Syrian regime never had the kind of commitment to uh, hostility to the United States and Israel that uh, uh, that Iran has. The Syrian regime never had this. One country that doesn't get a lot of attention internally is Iraq, and briefly in early May there were elections in Iraq the results of which were quite interesting. It didn't get a lot of global attention, but some people got excited because there was a coalition of Iraqi communists. Some people had forgotten that there were Iraqi communists. They're still around, and they formed a coalition with the followers of Muqtada al-Sadr, a Shia sectarian Islamist who has nonetheless kind of metamorphosed into something of an Iraqi nationalist um, who is not necessarily allied with Tehran. So if you could, you know, just share your, your impressions of what this, what, what did this mean, the, the, the victory of this coalition, this unusual and somewhat unlikely coalition between Iraqi communists and Sadrists? What did this mean for Iraq and what might it portend for the country's future? Yes, uh, yeah, there is an Iraqi Communist Party, and this party even uh, collaborated with the U.S. occupation of its country. So not, not exactly a radical uh, Communist Party, as the name would, uh, would uh, uh, suggest, okay? But uh, when it comes to social and democratic issues, uh, the party has been involved in trying to push forward some uh, social movement in the country on, uh, on social demands. 
And in that, uh, they converge at some point with the Southernist movement, which is a kind of uh, uh, populist uh, sectarian movement, uh, not aligned with Iran like other uh, components of the uh, Shia sectarian movement in Iraq. Um, and with a kind of populism that could lead them to take up social issues at some point against uh, the, the government. So that's the origin of this alliance, which uh, will translate into even an electoral alliance. Um, uh, that's remarkable indeed, not from the point of view of the Communist Party. What is remarkable is that the Southern accepts to, to get into a coalition with a much smaller party and a party that calls itself communist. And he was attacked by Iran for that. Mm. Iran openly attacked this idea of allying with, uh, with communists. Uh, now, f seen from the angle of the communists, that's part of a pattern of alliances without, uh, uh, how to say, um, the necessary uh, political uh, distanciation that you need to end the ideological fight against currents like this. Because even though he's not under Iranian control as others, uh, Sadr is far from being a progressive. Okay? Uh, he's also an Islamic fundamentalist. And, uh, and so they, they went into this, uh, this alliance. They got, the alliance got uh, more votes than others, but it's, uh, uh, the, spec, the, the political landscape is completely scattered, completely fragmented. So they got uh, some 50 plus uh, seats in the parliament. That's a parliament of 320 plus seats. So it's not, they didn't get a majority like some people reported uh, you know, without understanding or without having the facts. Um, soon after, Sadr made a deal with the Iran uh, uh, sponsored force uh, and uh, you know, reproduced a sectarian kind of uh, of, uh, of government that that uh, that uh, that you had, so that shows you that uh, alliances of this kind, uh, you know, uh, are not something that uh, uh, political, I mean, progressive forces uh, should go into, or at least without very clear demarcation between them and and the rest. So that's the the, the limit the limits of of that. I repeat, what remains interesting is that Southern and Southern's current accepted to take communists on board in their, in their coalition, but we shouldn't over-interpret, overestimate that. For this reason I just mentioned, they finally realigned themselves with the sectarian uh, uh, line of conduct. So I have a proposal. Oh, we have one more question. Yes, please, please. Thanks, Jaber. Uh, two quick questions. One is, uh, um, it's a kind of theoretical 
about how, when the counter-revolution ends and uh, how you, in terms of reconciling the first book and the second book as a continuation the people want and the morbid symptoms and uh, the idea of a longer revolutionary process vis-a-vis -vis the argument here about the, the triple and the two counter-revolutions. So how you, what do you think about these uh, different terms about uh, incomplete revolutions, uh, unfinished uprisings, and so forth. Uh, or in, in, in some sense, uh, problematizing the notions of defeat, the, the, the sense of demoralizations, and or victory, or the counter-revolution succeeded. How far, how, yeah. how you think of that? The second is, uh, it's not in the book, but it's related to the book about the current rule of Saudi Arabia and the, the, the confusion about the rule of the Crown Prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, as in some sense, the Saudi regime continued to be a leading counter-revolutionary force in the, in the aftermath of the uprising and intervening in the, explicitly in Yemen and many other things. And, uh, but at the, the same time, many leftists and liberals in the West are, are being confused about the, all this gesture about the, the guy is doing some reform for women, the driving, and uh, his dad is doing uh, women's right to vote. So there's uh, some sort of how to, to make sense of these guys are reformists, but at the same time they are really counter-revolutionary force. Uh, something along the, what, what is the crown prince and this confusion, debunking this confusion about Mohammed bin Salman? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I start by by uh, uh, the the Saudi uh, issue. This crown prince is projecting, trying to project himself, especially in the West, as a modernizer and a reformist, um, and. He believes that this change of image is important for, for even the stability of the regime uh, uh, and its, uh, its relation with the West and all that. He has been, he could have seen how much the, the image of the regime was, was bad, even in this country, in the United States of America. Although it's the main, <laughs> the, the paradox is, is that the existing Saudi regime uh, is, to a very large extent, uh, what it is, thanks to the United States of America. But that's the U.S. public opinion doesn't get, you know, most, most of it. So um, he is, I mean, this issue of, of women driving and all that, that's a, a limited concession. I mean, there have been a lot of things as if it was a, as if it were a huge revolution suddenly to allow women to drive, you know, and things like that. That's uh, uh, quite limited, but precisely the kind of thing that could be used in trying to refurbish the, the image. Uh, as we could see from the news and all that, at the same time that he was doing that, he was repressing those very women that had been fighting for that. So that shows that I'm willing to concede a few uh, uh, issues, but we decide what to concede, and no one 
can claim that they obtained that through their struggle. That's the message. Message is consolidation of this ultra uh, um, uh, despotic uh, regime that you have there. He's also trying to modernize the economy, trying to th the fact that that's a young person and very ambitious. That means that you have someone who is looking for several decades of power and knowing that uh, oil is not a renewable uh, resource, as we know, and uh, there's not an unlimited amount of oil. So he is also tr trying to prepare a post-oil uh, uh, economy. Uh, so he, but what, what he's done in this regard is, is quite uh, limited. As for the rest, the so-called anti-corruption drive, it's not anti-corruption, I mean, the whole system is corrupt, starting, starting with this young man who, who, uh, who a couple of years ago fancied a yacht, uh, yacht, you say? Yacht. Uh, yacht, and uh, uh, bought it for, half, for more than half, for 550 million US dollars, okay? More than half a billion dollars for something which he will probably use a, a few days per year. And um, the maintenance of which must, must cost uh, in itself a fortune. So that, I mean, so uh, that's not, you know, uh, out of his great labor, or it's not even uh, Bill Gates having uh, from uh, almost scratch built a fortune. These guys are just inheriting. Well, I mean, they, they own the state, they own, they own everything. This is a very patrimonial kind of, of, uh, of state. So uh, what was presented as corruption was actually part of the coup, because what you had is a coup through which this young man and his father, of course, with the election father, uh, are monopolizing power and shifting it from the larger Saudi family to their own family, which is a big shift. And uh, uh, that's, that's what he's doing in very repressive manners. So uh, we shouldn't forget that all this is being done while cultivating a climate of, uh, of repression in the country. In fact, arresting women activists. Yeah, I mentioned oh, okay. that, yeah. Uh, as for the other issue, the key point is, um, when, uh, I mean, when I use the formula long-term revolutionary process, the, the idea of a revolutionary process is very important in this regard to understand what is happening. Because after all, what you have in the big revolutionary upheavals were processes, not uh, short-term uh, historical moments. So uh, when you say the French Revolution, when you say the English Revolution, when you say even the Chinese Revolution, you're not speaking of, uh, of a few days or weeks or, or even months. You're speaking of actually decades, several decades uh, of ups and downs, revolution and counter-revolution, uh, surge and, uh, and setback. So that's what, uh, what started in 2011. And it's complicated by everything we, we discussed uh, tonight. Um, now, it is, we are 
still uh, in the initial phases, stages of that. The only safe prediction anyone can make about the region is there won't be any stabilization of the conditions in the region in the foreseeable future. That's the only safe prediction. The only safe prediction is instability. More explosions, and we see them. At the beginning of this year, we had in Sudan, in Tunisia, in Morocco, Jordan. Algeria, Jordan recently, uh, even Iran joined the fray, although the Iranian case is different, but uh, the social economic reasons for protest uh, can be, uh, can be uh, similar. Um, this is pointing to the fact that this, uh, this uh, powder keg is, uh, has still a huge potential of explosion and will carry, this will carry on for a long time. Now, I say it bluntly, there is no reason for optimism today. And the prevailing mood is one of pessimism, actually. And there are more reasons for pessimism than reasons for optimism. But the point is, and that's what I tried also to say when we applied to the previous questions about uh, the potential, is neither should, I mean, the discussion shouldn't be in terms of pessimism and optimism, unless you go with the well-known formula of pessimism and of the intellect combined with optimism of the will. The key point is rather one of hope. So there's no reason for optimism, but there's still a reason for hope. And the reason for hope is the potential that I mentioned, mm. and this big potential. Now, the, that's a big question mark. Will this realize and materialize in forces for social change, which with the political ability to do that? That's the big question. The, what one can say is that short of that, the alternative to that, well, remind us, reminds us of uh, uh, Rosa Luxemburg's uh, famous alternative. Here is uh, Peter, who's a, a specialist of Rosa. Socialism or barbarism, uh, this progressive social change, the alternative to, 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 to that in the Arab world is more of the barbarism that we have seen over the last few years. That's the, the, the question. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, Email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com.
www.thegoradio.com or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening and for more conversations, please visit thestatushour.com. Thank you.